Act Now is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. I am nothing if not a crafter of tension through the piece. So I never want you as the audience to be able to lay back in your seat. I want you on the edge of it. And that means I have to nurture tension constantly. Welcome back to the Act Now podcast, where with the generous assistance of our partners at Goal 17 Media, we're endeavoring to bring the energy of Act Theater to you in this time of a citywide shutdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're going to try something new. Greg Molnar, the co-founder of Goal 17 Media, has turned the tables on me. And instead of being the host, for the next half hour, I... John Lang's artistic director of ACT Theater have become the guest. In a world that's turned upside down, I thought, why not? Out of the barely comfortable zone where I was sitting, here we go. Thanks, John. Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Molnar. I'm the co-founder of Goal 17 Media. And what we're going to do today is talk with John about the process of taking a play from page to stage. Now, to do that, we're going to have to go to a very dangerous place. And that is the mind of a director. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> so I'll hope you give us access to that. I'll do my best, Greg. I'll do my best. So before we get started, let's get to know a little bit about you. You started out as an actor, right? Yes, I did. I did. I actually started out only my junior year in high school that I even find the theater. So before that, I was mostly an athlete. I was growing up um, you know, all-American suburb, and I was a junior in high school when I had a decision to make uh, for an elective. I was going to take woodshop, but my mother said, hey, I, I think you might gain a little more confidence if you took a theater class. That was the beginning, and um, the bug bit pretty quickly afterwards. So what was it like when you sat down at the kitchen table and said, hey, mom and dad, I want to be an actor? You know, they were very supportive. I feel like my mom says we grew up like weeds. There wasn't a whole lot of, of, of gardening in the raising of her three children. So um, they kind of just followed along. And it was a deep inhale from my parents, I think. Uh, but actually, when I became an actor, we were living in Stockton, California, the armpit of California, I, I lovingly say. In my sophomore year, my father took the family to Europe for a year, actually. He was, you know, in his 40s, he'd never been anywhere. And he said, you know, I'm going to take the family on an adventure. And we lived in the south of France for a year. We came back and I felt a sense of total culture shock. Not so much going to Europe, but coming back, having had all of these experiences. And it was shortly after that, that uh, my mom said, you need to choose an elective. It's either woodshop or theater. And I think I want you to take the theater class just to see if you can gain a little more confidence as a person. And then um, I had an experience over my junior year where they started to feel like, oh, he's, he's getting serious about this. Nonetheless, though, sending your kid to a theater school, it's not a safe choice. Thankfully, my parents went along with it. You went to North Carolina. How did you choose that? Before North Carolina, I was at the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts, which is a two-year vocational training program at a junior college in uh, Santa Maria, California. It has the fortunate connection to be standing right next to a professional theater. And so I got a little professional theater experience right out of high school. And then a friend of mine who was there went to North Carolina. He called me up and he said, I don't know what's happening here, but my life is changing and you need to get here. There is a director, a dean of students who is blowing my mind. 
So I looked up this guy who eventually became my mentor, and that got me out to North Carolina School of the Arts. So what was your first professional acting gig when you finally started, you, you were making it? I, well, I certainly wasn't making it, but my, my first professional acting gig was in a musical where I played a young romantic leading man who impregnated his young girlfriend in a musical by Mulpey and Shire called Baby. And it was out in Solvang in Santa Maria on the stage. Um, for those of you who know Seattle Theater, one of my castmates is now the artistic director of sound theater, Teresa Thuman. We often laugh about that when we see each other. How long did you act before you started to move into directing? I've been acting through high school. Uh, I ran a summer theater program at my high school when I was going to college. And so that's where I really started directing. But it wasn't until this gentleman that I mentioned before. His name is Gerald Friedman. He's a brilliant man. He recently passed away at 90 years old, just a couple of weeks ago, actually. And um, he worked with Joseph Papp to make the public theater. He was an institution in New York and a great acting teacher. And I got into his acting program. And he also had started a small directing program for students. That was it. And at one point, he said, I want you to be in the directing program. And I said, there's no way. I want to be an actor. That's what I want to do. And he came back um, halfway through the year and he said, I, I think you should really consider the directing program. And I said, yeah, no. He's like, think about it over the summer. He called me over the summer. He said, you know, I'm the best thing happening at this school. I don't know why you wouldn't want to be in my class. You're going to learn a great deal about acting. And I said, you know, Jerry, I came to school to be an actor. And then he pulled me aside my first day back my sophomore year. And he said, John, you're a good looking guy, but you're not devastatingly handsome. You have a high reedy voice that's not going to allow you to play the parts that you think you should. I don't think your career as an actor is going to be nearly as exciting as your career as a director. And you're coming into the directing program. And I was totally shocked. It completely took the wind out of my sails, just the kind of brutal honesty of it. Um, but if you're fortunate enough to have a great mentor in your life, uh, often they have to bring the honesty with a bit of a baseball bat so that you get it. And that's certainly what he did. And then there was this tricky negotiation where I was like, yeah, but I'll still be an actor. And he's like, sure, sure. But just follow me through this program. He started my professional career at the Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland, Ohio. And he continued to be an, a, a tremendous mentor through my life. I miss him. I miss him so much, particularly these days. I think that, you know, I think, unfortunately, I've lost a lot of people during this pandemic. And I, and I kind of can't wait to grieve them on the other side of it. But he, he's, he was one of the first people to go. Not of COVID, but just timing, right? Uh, a couple of days ago when we were talking, you said, I asked you, what was the performance that made you decide that you wanted to be a director? Yeah, I mentioned that my parents uh, saw the change in me in my junior year. So what happened was I was sitting in the fourth row center at the Angus Bomer Theater in Ashland, Oregon, in a program called the High School Seminar for Juniors in that Ashland ran, where juniors in high school would go and see like 14 plays in 13 days. I'm sitting there watching Enrico Four, a Pirandello play directed by Libby Apple. There's a gentleman who walks on stage. His name is Rex Raybolt. He's a terrific actor. He's giving a monologue to the audience about mortality, about the fear of dying. And in the middle of the monologue, his wig malfunctions. It slips. And people start sort of tittering in the audience around me. And that fucking actor grabbed the audience 
by the throat psychically. He ripped his wig off. He came down center stage and he delivered a monologue that pinned me to the back of my chair about the nature of what it felt like to fear to die. So Rex, I learned the next year, was dying of AIDS when he gave that monologue to that audience. And there was the Daedalus Project in Ashland where they brought out his crown from that particular moment. And I always go back to that moment like a touchstone in my life because it was 30 seconds. It was truly 30 seconds that completely changed my life. Um, And I go to work every day thinking if I can be a part of 30 seconds of changing some person's life the way that that changed mine, then this will all have been worth it. Wow. Well, let's talk about directing. I've gone to hundreds of plays in my life. And I think one of the mysterious part of a play is that the actor, excuse me, the director is invisible. You see the actors, you see the talent, you see the wardrobe, you see the lighting. But unless you're pretty astute to the process, I don't think the directing really comes across. It's almost like this just happens magically. So when you look at a script the first time, how do you start to envision going from page to stage? Well, first of all, I want to just address the, the, the invisibility of the director. I think really good directors are very invisible. But what becomes visible or almost uh, that you feel psychically from a director is anytime you're bored in the theater, anytime your attention is wavering, that, that demerit goes, I think, to the director's chair. You know, I think, um, and that becomes where a director for me becomes visible. On the other side, there are people who impress a concept on a piece of work that's so heavy that you basically walk out singing the costumes or the lighting, but you don't know fuck all about what the play was. So I feel like, um, for me, directing, of course, because I'm inside of it, is a little more visible around those edges. But good directing, I think, would let you leave the theater never speaking about directing. There's a... There's a quote I read to actors, uh, usually on the first day of rehearsal, and I've read it to the company several times. Um, And it is about uh, the no theater um, and about an actor in the no theater. In the no theater, it's super specific. It's very gestural. There is a gesture of pointing at the moon. And one actor, very talented, comes out and everyone admires the way he turns his head and the way he crooks his arm and the way his finger delicately taps the sky. And they say, wow, what a marvelous performer. And then the master comes out and does the same gesture and you see the moon. And that's, I think, the invisible art of acting and directing. And that is something that you you strive for every day. So that is my, I think, in the background, my philosophy about directing. But when you get started with a play, and uh, I've been fortunate enough to work on a lot of new plays at Act Theater, you read it over and over and over again until it's in you, until something authentic about the material is connecting with your spirit and you start to dream it. You start to have these waking dreams about moments. Sometimes they're the smallest moments. Like I know that in this line, she's going to drag on her cigarette and puff that smoke into his face. I just know that's going to happen. And it may not be something that you ever tell an actor to do but this dream can start from a little pinprick and then pretty soon there's a huge river of images 
and thoughts about the play that guides the next part of the process. And as you read through that, are you already imagining casting strategies and people? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been fortunate in my life to collect um, and be collected by some wonderful collaborators. And so, yeah, pretty instantly, I'm like, oh, my God, that's a part for Lindsay Evans or that's a part for Chip Sherman or um, and these are core company members that act. And I start to hear them in my head as I'm reading the piece and that helps. Oh, my God, there's a shortcut then because there's kind of um, a shorthand that we have built over working together through a time. So yeah, I hear that. I see them right away. So let's go back through the steps. You've read the script. You're thinking about casting, but do you sit down with a piece of paper? How do you start thinking about the scenes? How do you start to piece this together? So on that first rehearsal, you have an idea of where you want to take this process. Yeah. And that's where craft comes in. And this goes back to my mentor, Gerald, you know, acting is doing. So you have to find what the doing is of the scene. I often say the push me, pull you. Who's pushing? Who's pulling? What's the conflict? If there's no conflict, there's no tension. I am nothing if not a crafter of tension through the piece. So I never want you as the audience to be able to lay back in your seat. I want you on the edge of it. And that means I have to nurture tension constantly. So, and you eat it one bite at a time, like, you know, you eat an elephant. So first scene, first three beats, he wants the car keys out of her purse. And she wants to, for him to say that he loves her. That's what we have to negotiate. Okay. That's the first beat. Next beat, he gets the car keys. Now she wants to block him from leaving in whatever way she can. That's the next beat. So I come into a rehearsal prepared with lines of tension And then I try to sit back and listen because ultimately I don't have to do anything for a while. Um, I need to let the actors get out all their ideas first. But the second that I sort of drop my little idea in, you can screw up the rehearsal process because you haven't allowed them to get to the end of their idea to know whether it's good or bad. And so I think when I was younger, oh, I had so many ideas and I always jump on the actors and I'd be like, it's this and it's this. And it just, it just would cripple them sometimes. And uh, nowadays, I think I've learned that, that I just have to have those arrows in my quiver for when they're needed. I'm just guessing, but so you, you come with a certain idea of how you want these scenes to develop. But as you watch the actors go through this, my guess is you start to refine it and realize you know, a different entrance or a different process, or do you really have it all set to go when you come in? No, absolutely not. Um, I, I, in fact, um, can be a very frustrating directors for actors who want their blocking. I want to know where I, my feet are going, and then I'll give you the performance. To wit, I say, look, I'm trying to encourage real living in this space. So for a very long time, I say, what does your character want to do? Go there. Somebody will turn to me and they'll say, well, should I sit down here? And my answer is, I don't know. What does your character need right now? Is that the best way they're going to get it? And they're like, yeah, but you're the director. And I'm like, yes, but your performance is only going to be as good as your confidence and your imagination can make it. I'll get there. I'll be there with you. I'll have your back. And ultimately, um, no, there are certain people I work with who, and, and I'll yield at some point. I have one actor who's like, I need my blocking. I will yield because I won't get anything from that actor until they get their blocking. It's just different processes. It's like being a translator. And I think a good director speaks a lot of different languages of actor, a lot of different dialects of actor. One of the things that's interesting about films and our plays is they're essentially like little startups. 
-hmm. Everybody comes together from cast, crew, lighting, and they become this company for 30 to 60, 90 days or a year. And then they disappear. Yeah. It's like this mini startup, it gets going and then it dies. Yeah. So you're putting together a group of actors. How do you blend the chemistry, especially with people who haven't worked together? And, and, you know, some actors have egos. So how do you, (laughs) (laughs) how do you, how do you blend this? So there's a cooperative process on stage as opposed to a competitive process on stage. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting because we talk about running a room. How do you run your room? And if you run your room with generosity and compassion and a deep sense of empathy, and I love actors, I think they're remarkable. So my respect for them is very high. Um, and I try to work with them. You know, you have to take everything that they bring, because if the second that you shut them down, you're making a statement, not just to the actor you're talking to, but the whole room. And there are moments when you have to do that. But I feel like over and over again, you've got to get everybody on a mission. So what is the mission of this play? Uh, For example, we were working on a brand new play about the election, the Goldwater Lyndon Johnson election called Daisy. We were working on it during 2016 election of of Trump Clinton. And the mission of the play was to say, listen, you must understand that we are all vulnerable to being manipulated by messaging. And if we can get that across through this historical text to our audience right now, we'll have made them think about what they're going to do when they're faced with this decision. Have they been manipulated into making a decision? What have they, what, what kind, and you know, of course, this is on the eve of um, now that we know that the Russians are involved in meddling with the elections through social media. Um, it's a, it was a very important story to tell. And when you got the actors saying like, wow, we can matter, you must find a reason that this play matters or you mustn't do it. You know, I, I've also been in rooms where like, I don't, I've been hired to direct this play and they've led to some pretty big flops when I can't find my way or reason for why we should say these words in front of people. So what was your biggest flop? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've well, and what, was, what, what, what caused it? Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. What causes a flop? Well, it, it's like cooking, you know, the wrong ingredients, um, the wrong timing, the wrong, you know, uh, I mentioned, I used to be a director who would, you know, jump on, on ideas way too soon and not let them percolate. And yeah, I guess, I guess there were a couple of, of big flops early on. Um, and you know, some later, sure. Where I just misjudged the audience or I misjudged the play. I mean, one play, uh, I thought was a screaming comedy, you know, and I directed it that way. So fast, so crisp. Um, and it really needed to breathe. And I remember the review, which was in a Los Angeles paper, which called me a slumbering oarsman, <laughs> um, directed by the slumbering oarsman, uh, you know, asleep at the wheel uh, is an interesting profession because I don't know of a whole lot of professions where you're going to get your review in the newspaper and millions or hundreds of people can read it, you know. Yeah, it makes makes you a lot more vulnerable as either an actor or director. So having been an actor first, does that help or hinder your ability to be a director? I think what I learned from being an actor uh, is how difficult it is to be an actor. And I, I was effective, but not great as an actor. And I could never shake the, the 
like I never got to the level where I was absolutely inhabiting a character the way I see some of the actors that I work with do. But what I did learn was what is needed to create a good performance. Um, for example, repetition. Some people think repetition can be like, oh, well, you're going to deaden this thing. But if you, rep if you repeat an actor with specific and clear challenges towards where they're going and you give them enough repetition, they can become incredibly free. But without it, um, sometimes it's just, it's like watching somebody learn to ski. It's like plant the pole, turn the ski. When what you really want to do is watch them slalom. Um, and so repetition, I think, is something that mm, is, a, is a big part of my practice in order to make the actor brave, in order to free them, in order for them to know, oh, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going so well, I could wake up at three in the morning, cough, and do this scene. That's how well I know it. And then rehearse some more. So you've been directing for over 30 years. You've directed over 100 plays from Shakespeare to musicals to standards. So why act and why contemporary theater? Well, I always say that act kind of chose me. Um, and I, I, I was so fortunate to have a pretty good freelance career, which took me all over the country. Um, and one of the stops was Seattle. And my very first job in Seattle, I was given King Lear to direct at the Seattle Shakespeare Company, um, which I was completely surprised by. And even more surprised that Seattle Shakespeare Company, when they gave me the job, hadn't identified the person that would play Lear yet, um, which was weird because when you do a Lear, you think, oh, they have a huge idea about the, this iconic role and who in the community should do it. They didn't. So I panicked. <laughs> I called everybody I knew in Seattle and I said, who is your King Lear? And they said, oh, that's going to be Kurt Beatty. And that name came back three or four times. Well, Kurt at that time was the artistic director of ACT Theater. We had a phone call, which was our first meeting. And he told me, I will play your King Lear, but if you are one of those directors who yells at people during rehearsal, I will throw your ass out of the room. And I said, cool, I think that we're going to work great together. <laughs> um, and, you know, he had a lot of clout from the community and he came in and we put together a really good and intense show. And I remember it wasn't always um, chummy, but I knew my job and he knew his really well. But there was a respect that got built there. And then for the next four or five years, whenever I came to Seattle, I would go and sit on the couch in his office. And then this weird thing started to happen where... I would be directing in Chicago and there'd be a knock on the door and somebody would say, hey, Kurt Beatty is here and he'd love to sit in and watch rehearsal. And I'm, you know, Looking Glass Theater in Chicago and I don't know what Kurt Beatty's doing there. I'm like, sure, come on in. That was a particularly embarrassing rehearsal. We were way behind in tech. Then he came to Playwrights Horizons in New York and we got a knock on the door and somebody said, hey, Kurt Beatty's here. He'd love to come in and watch rehearsal. You know, that was, we we're doing a little better at that point. And then he called me and he said, hey, I'm, I think it's time for me to step down. And I think you're the guy. And would you be willing to come on as an associate artistic director and learn the job and take over? And I was floored. And at that point in my life, I had been 15 years in Los Angeles. Um, unfortunately, you know, a freelance career has took its toll on my first marriage. And But I was a new father, very confusing and difficult time. I needed a dad job that would give security to my new family. And I needed a place to land after um, a pretty, you know, amicable divorce. And Seattle opened its arms and um, I've been here ever since. Let's talk about ACT. What's the chemistry? What makes ACT 
different? Well, I just have to talk about the spirit of ACT. It's less, I would say, uh, something that we'll put on a billboard about why ACT is different, but it's certainly a feeling. And that is that it was started by Greg Falls, who was a tremendous visionary in the theater landscape of Seattle. He famously said, theaters like grapes grow better in bunches. And when they opened the Seattle Repertory Theater, I think it was the next summer he opened Act Theater uh, almost across the street down in Queen Anne. He generated a patron base that was adventurous and smart and intellectual and loved conversation and loved to argue. And he cultivated that by bringing them work that he said, I didn't always love the work that we did, but I knew that it was part of the national conversation and it was important. And he wanted to be uh, serving the appetite for bold, contemporary, cutting-edge theater. And that is the audience that we have cultivated. And that, I think, is what's expected of any artistic director who comes to ACT. But there's, he also engendered a sense of goodwill. And many people know ACT has had very difficult times. A near closure in 2008 and one before that. And it was saved because people in the community cared for us personally, like we were family. And... That has been the saving grace and the legacy of Greg Falls and his subsequent artistic directors and and managing directors who have believed in that spirit. And we always talk about it in shorthand. You know, you pick up the phone. how How do you greet somebody? Helpful and friendly. Helpful and friendly. And then make a very comfortable space to make people feel really uncomfortable by the plays and the art that you do. Well, let's talk about that. Seattle is often referred to as a very progressive and uh, an intellectual theater town. Agreed. I absolutely love Seattle for that reason. So as a director and as you see the support for ACT, how is that different from what you've seen in other communities? I mean, I think the essential difference is that the audience um, comes with like a voracious intellectual appetite. They want to be challenged. They want to be stimulated. Our most successful plays have been by writers that make the audience feel as smart as they are. Um, and so when you read something, I look for that tingle in the back of my neck that goes, whoa, I never thought of something that way. The beautiful play right now we're talking about called The Right to Be Forgotten, which is about the internet and how it never forgets what you do and all of the moral implications and, and human costs of something that could remember uh, a stupid event that you made in high school, but it could mark you for your whole life. Like That's a great intellectual idea to build a play around. Um, but also plays like The Crucible, you know, a, a, a you know, meat and potatoes, American classic, but smart really smart. And um, there's uh, often when I'm reading plays, I I kind of get a a spidey sense of like, okay, this is definitely an act theater production. John, this is so exciting. And we're learning so much more about what takes page to stage. And I think as a listener, I'm learning more about how to appreciate a play. So let's take an intermission and pick this back up next week on our next podcast because there's a lot to learn here. And I think a lot of joy that can come out of continuing this conversation. Great. I'll see you in next week. Mm-hmm.